This episode of the MedTalk podcast is brought to you by European Pharmaceutical Manufacturer, a publication covering the entire supply chain of pharmaceutical manufacturing. Subscribe now at epmmagazine.com. Hello and welcome to the MedTalk podcast. My name is Rhys Armstrong, the editor of European Pharmaceutical Manufacturer and your host for today's episode. I'm joined by Mike Rea, the CEO of Idea Pharma. Mike is an expert in all things drug development and through Idea Pharma has helped pharmaceutical companies bring their molecules through the development pipeline and onto the market. He is a contributor to Fortune, Stat and Endpoints and also hosts his own podcast called Idea Collider. Recently, he launched a sister company to Idea Pharma called Protodyne which has been launched to help those within Biopharma bring their products to market through the generation of more robust evidence. Mike, um, first of all, just thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Really nice to have you. I'm delighted. Thank you so much for the invitation. No problem. Um, yeah, ju- so just to get started, I guess, could you just um, give our listeners um, a brief introduction of yourself and a little bit of your time in the industry so far? Yeah, so... Um yeah, I'm Mike Rea. Uh, I run two, the two companies, as you say, Idea Pharma and Protodyme. Um, but it's been a long journey to today. Sort of an interesting sort of set of pivots from, uh, you know, from a, a, a very bad degree in genetics. Uh, you know, back in the '80s when genetics was uh, uh, was I'm going to say nascent. I mean, we knew about it for a while, but um, I was fascinated by biotechnology. But the course that I did didn't yet reflect that. Um, but you know, along the way, I did things like started the American Football League in the in in, in the UK while I was at university. I uh, you know started a record label, you know, and, and a bunch of other things around this. But I've always um, you know used the degree to go into science publishing, then into strategy, and then for twenty years now have uh, have run Idea. But probably I'm going to you know tend to talk about this in reverse you know the last 10 years have been the most meaningful since we've sort of decided to focus on this uh, very early phase uh, innovation uh, strategy mm-hmm. and what is it you actually do through the companies in terms of how you work with um, pharmaceutical companies to to help bring their you know their products to market yeah so well, I'll, I'll talk about idea because protodyme's only a couple of months uh, out there but uh, so idea if you imagine taking an asset or a molecule at phase one and really looking at um in all the places that that product could launch you know and there's never just one there's 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 dozens or hundreds of ways that you could get that product onto the market if it jumps all the hurdles of clinical regulatory and uh and commercial so the first thing we do is to is to map out those destinations and say look these are all possible places to go but let's you know and once you've decided on one or ten uh is to really say well look there's lots of different paths that would connect a and B, you know, you could go faster, you could go bigger, you could go at risk. And some of that's contingent on, you know, how much competition there is, you know, and therefore speed is good or, you know, or like that kind of classic metaphor of being the second mouse at the mouse trap. Sometimes it's best to be second, but best, you know, those kinds of things are, are really where we focus. So idea generates those possibilities, you know, here's what you could do and then works with, a, with our clients on, you know, which of them is best. Uh, and really, it's best for them. So, if you're a biotech or you're a large pharma company, you might have a different definition of what good looks like uh, next to the next to those choices. So, yeah, that's you know that's where we focus. 
So you know, it's a kind of combination of creativity with uh, sort of deep insight into into what innovation really is. Yeah, just um, I suppose just before we get into that a little, a little bit more, some of the, um, the stats associated to yourself and Idea Pharma are that in the past five years, you know, you've had a hand in helping bring eight of the fifteen biggest drug launches to market. First of all, just what was the experience like of working with those those major molecules and uh, and those companies? And um, I, I guess also, are there any common themes you've, you've seen throughout those years? Um, the difficulties, the challenges, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I rewind maybe 10 years to, to go back to the last five. Um, so we created something called the Pharmaceutical Innovation Index about 11 years ago. And that index was a way of ranking the top 30 pharma companies for their ability to launch meaningfully you know and this goes back to our definition of innovation versus invention you know our industry doesn't tend to think about those two things separately but invention is really how you get good stuff into the pipeline Mm -hmm. innovation is how you add value to that kind of return on invention if you like Mm -hmm. um and we did that actually as a teaching exercise for ourselves which is it started with a question which is if you gave the same drug to two different companies in phase one would they be equally successful and everyone you know, I knew that the answer was no, but no one really knew why. And we thought, well, actually, the why is the most interesting. So, question there, because you can turn a why into a how. And we've really run it as a 10-year study of innovation, you know, what tends to lead to success, what tends to not lead to success. And sometimes we're very keen to not attribute success to a company when it's been a team within a company that's been successful, despite the company sometimes. Um, some of the drugs that we worked on, you know, like Ocrevus, Opdivo, you know, others have been outlier-based uh, performances, and they've been almost that perfect example of, you know, a drug given to the set to two different companies at the same time. So you look at Opdivo versus Keytruda or, or Ocrevus entering a, a crowded marketplace. Um, you know, some of the lessons were to not think like the crowd, to begin to think about what are variables, what are not variables, whether the regulatory definitions in the case of Ocrevus were fixed or they could be uh, managed, you know, if you study the drug differently. For something like Obdivo, you know, the relevance of the physician insight, the patient insight coming back into the design of the of the program. And, and sometimes even the way that you talk about the benefits, you know, what 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 does a cancer drug do for patients? You know, it isn't just that it kills cancer, you know, in this case, was it curing? Was it curing, you know, a big enough percentage of the population to be talking about it? Um, did you need the biomarker? All those kind of things were, were considerations. So, 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 yeah, you know, it feels great, but actually, you know, the credit all goes to the clients because we tend to lay out a range of ideas for our clients. Sometimes the good ones will pick the more interesting ideas. Sometimes they go in the middle with the sort of safe stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I give credit for those launches wholly to the teams that took the ideas forward. Um, you know, and that's one of the things that we like is to find those clients who, you know, really do want to challenge things. Who don't want to just take, you know, good enough mid-table performance as a as a, as, as a good outcome. Yeah. Do Do you think that's is it is it quite a high possibility of that occurring considering considering how difficult it is to get a drug to market? You know, all, the data is pretty much stacked against co- companies. Um, it, it, the high costs. I assume a lot of them just want to get their products, you know, on, onto the market so they can make some money. Yeah, it's it's a difficult dance because you're, it's a, you're right. You're treading that edge between, you know, the harder you make it in development, potentially the better you make it when you get to market. Mm. Um, you know, novel endpoints, you know, higher effect sizes. All those things are increasing the technical 
difficulty for those molecules. But you know, that's if you have a linear view. You know, you know, we can make it harder within this one path A to B. But what if we took B and we went over to C and said, actually, that could be faster anyway. It could be a precision medicine approach. So I think it is sometimes a dance, but it's it's harder. It's a harder dance if you've already decided on where you're destination is going to be because then you're just having an argument about whether to you know make it bigger or smaller and uh, you know the clinical development folks usually win because they're the ones in control of the budgets and the study designs and so forth but um uh no i mean i think this is a really important conversation is how we look at our model within our industry and whether we accept that attrition will kill drugs I mean, our, our view is sometimes good drugs are killed by bad studies and uh, or bad, you know, clinical paths. So the, the, you know, the likelihood is, is a lot of good drugs have just been failed by their companies rather than the other way around. Yeah, yeah, and we see that as well. With sort of, you, you, we see a lot of small startups looking at sort of past past clinical data and trying to revive some drugs that have been lost. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, d- during the pipeline, I, I think just how easy how easy is it? For a drug to get lost, say in a crowded market such as oncology, for instance, you know, you know, one of the biggest sectors for pharmaceuticals. Even if it's successful, is there a case of well, if it's not positioned correctly under the market within the right timing, or if it's going up against bigger competition, yep. you know, is that a major pitfall for companies? Completely. No, I mean, if you look at the stats, so one in four drugs that launches, sorry, only one in four drugs that launch even returns its own investment, never mind pays for the drugs that failed. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's a lot of drugs are underwater, if you like, even on, on market. And that's true of, say, the you know, the checkpoint inhibitor class. There's only two of those drugs have ever got above the, you know, the break-even, you know, in all this time. Right. And that's probably going to be true forever. Um, and then you look at, you know, causes for failure in phase three, which is one of the things we look at in the innovation index. You know, the, the biggest single cause of failure in phase three is not that the drugs don't work, it's that you can't get patients into the study. You know, mm-hmm. so it tells you something about sort of uh, you know competitive classes or competitive therapeutic areas like oncology where competition for patients is is meaningful. But it also sort of points to why you shouldn't be looking at me too approaches to, to to markets. If you just got a version of something somebody else already has, well, of course you've just increased the difficulty in getting patients into your study. So I think it's why we, we reject this kind of idea of attrition as a sort of natural and predictable, you know, case and start to say, well, actually, you know, if you're looking at one drug, it's a bit like the way that, uh, you know, that we raise children instead of the way that fish do. You know, if you're going to, you know, you know, put a thousand eggs out there and just hope that one of them survives enough to, to grow up versus taking care of the one that you do have. You'll you'll think very differently about how you nurture and and, and you know provide a future for that uh, uh, for, for for that for that drug. So yeah, no, I think it's um I, I think the industry is ready for a, a rethink on how it thinks about early phase because I think a lot of the the problems are already started at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I suppose that brings us on to um to protodyme and the, the approach you're taking to um you know this type of robust evidence that can inform some of the decisions um, yeah. through a pathway. Um, yeah. you, you launched earlier this year, but could you just ex- expand a little bit on the company and uh, specifically its focus on the biopharma market? Yeah, so the interesting thing, you know, with idea is, you know, we tend to present a range of ways that you could take an asset to market. And then I use this metaphor, you know, it's like a dark street with one street light. Uh, everyone's comfortable under the street light. 
and everyone looks at the data that you have from preclinical and early phase, and they, you know everyone comes is comfortable to stay there, and they do the deep dives there. But you know that the rest of the street is interesting, but just unlit. So you could take the torch out and look at you know that might be more interesting if we were to go left or right. Um, but people are uncomfortable because they have evidence within within that one frame. And often that's the case when we present ideas to clients about getting stuff to market as well, which is, you know, there's an absence of evidence sometimes in, in, to make a decision with. So we really said, look, if the evidence collection is a problem, we could do that. You know, you, there's lots of ways of generating evidence in support of a decision. As long as you move the decision goalposts further forward. So our view is, is phase one should be exploratory. It should be asking questions. It shouldn't just be providing a signal for a question that you've already asked, which is, you know, I think this drug is going to be a, an anti-inflammatory and rheumatoid arthritis, and that everything I'm going to do from that point onwards is, is is targeted towards that. As soon as you move the decision goalpost and say, well, actually, let's make a decision once you've got some evidence in hand, then you can, can go and collect more interesting evidence of, you know, uh, different disease states or different patient types or, you know, could we put it next to a diagnostic or you know, could there be a regulatory indication if we were to... To, to, to move it this way, or is there a different commercial model that would support this cell therapy, gene therapy development? You know, those kinds of things. So we've just really moved the, the decision goalpost and said, well, actually, the pre-decision goalpost, let's make sure that by the time we get to that decision point that we're well equipped with good evidence for the range of, of things this drug would do. Knowing also, you know, there's a lot of ways of studying drugs now that didn't exist 10 years ago. You know, there's the, there are endpoints, there are metrics, there are ways of, of getting clues and signals that you just couldn't get from doing a traditional phase one, phase two, phase three linear design. And that range, I think, is really important. Uh, companies need agility, and you know it's very hard to get agility when you've got a CRO space that's focused on scale, on size, and the companies themselves are focused on you know just, just keeping the conveyor belt going. Mm -hmm. Our view is, well, you know, before we get there, let's let's you know apply you know good, rigorous scientific curiosity to the task uh, and, and give each of those options you know slightly more evidence to make a decision with. Yeah, so I mean, are, are you seeing a lot of drugs that are essentially being not missed out on, but potentially underexplored in, in their use against, you know, potential um, targets within the body? Completely. Yeah, because I mean, you know, there's two things you don't know. I mean, we'll say the motto that we have is the molecule that leaves the lab and the molecule you launch to the same molecule, all that separates them is what you learn. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if you don't learn the range early enough or the kind of range of where it might work, or learn what the market might want, or even what the regulators might allow. We always say those three things are the, are the real three keys to this, which is, you know, what does the market want? What might a regulator allow? And then, you know, is it possible to develop this drug to, to hit either of those things? There's a lot to learn in that space. And if you try and make, you know, a prediction very early, we'd like this drug to be a, you know, rheumatoid arthritis drug, then you'll miss stuff that sits off to the side of that. that could have been more interesting. That could have, uh, that could have worked differently. Um, so as soon as you've decided on one thing, you've got success or failure. And then you're sort of hoping that by the time you get to phase three, that it's got a big enough differentiation against everything else. That, uh, But even if you take that example, you know, rheumatoid arthritis needs drugs that target symptoms and these drugs that target uh, damage, joint damage, and these drugs that target prevention and disease pathology. They're not all the same. But if they all get run over the same rule, you know, it's like uh, it's like judging every car by how much uh, you know shopping you can put in the you know in the in the in the trunk. Uh, yeah. It's not gonna it's it's not a very healthy guide. 
but sometimes drugs are really subject to that same thing. So, you know, Ferrari and a, and a kind of Toyota Prius look the same in that, uh, in, in most drugs, uh, uh, most drug companies' pipelines. Mm-hmm. And do, do you think just because of the high, high costs within drug development, the, the length of time it takes to get to market, you know, the regulatory barriers, that this is why, you know, companies might see um, an indication for a molecule and, and just, you know, shoot for that straight away rather than being a bit more curious, like like you've said? Um, I think it goes to incentive structures. It goes to a bunch of other things. And I think actually the attrition that we've seen is linked to the lack of productivity, which is also linked to not doing it very well. But, you know, the drugs that do make it tend to cost a lot because, you know, we're paying for all those failures. So I think it's a it's a negative spiral. Um but uh, you know there are there there are ways to really think about that differently to uh, to to sort of prioritize you know for this drug this opportunity to launch in this place is you know we could get there quickly we could get there at low cost we could niche you know we could go for a subpopulation we could go for a kind of micro indication versus a, a, a large one and build out that way um, you know, and there's lots of alternatives to mitigate drug costs and i think it's really one that the biotechs are seeing now we're seeing more biotechs getting through to approval with you know in some cases 300 500 million dollar programs instead of the two and a half to 10 billion dollar per approval that we've seen in some companies you know the the innovation index um one of its side effects is that we show how much uh, companies have spent on r&d versus the number of approvals they've had and the range goes from something like a billion dollars per drug in the top thirty to ten billion dollars per drug in within the top thirty as well. You know, not all of that R and D is going on new drugs; some of it's going on old. But um, you know, that also tells you that it's heterogeneous in a space that you know companies aren't equally good at getting drugs through to uh, approval. Um, but the the kind of regulatory incentive, I think, is it, it's it's something to attack. We had a conversation. You know, about seven or eight years ago, with someone in a in a pain uh, in a franchise in one of the the major companies, and he had a drug, a trip V one receptor antagonist, which all I really knew was that it was a heat pain receptor. And yeah. uh, I said, "Oh, that's interesting. Where is it?" He said, "Oh, it's in proof of concept." And my next question was, "Well, which proof of concept is it in?" He said, "Oh, it's in osteoarthritis." I said, "Okay, just help me because uh, you know my my degree wasn't that good." Uh, are there any of those receptors in the joints? He said, no. So I said, how will it work? He said, well, it won't. I said, so it's in a proof of concept that you know it won't work in. Um, and so what, just why would you do that? It, will, it, will it get through that proof of concept? He said, no, probably not. Said, so why was it in there? And he said, oh, because when we asked the regulatory guys internally how you get a pain drug through you know, development, you have to do an osteoarthritis proof of concept. I said, well, it's the wrong question for that drug. That, you know, mm-hmm. It's not how do people usually get a pain drug through, uh, through, through through the pipeline. It's how do I get this one through. But there's no uh, disincentive for a regulator to say that, right, which is you know, if you just do this proof of concept, we can get you a pain uh, in, in, indication. But you know, there's all sorts of ways to turn left with a drug like that. And I think this, t- this tells you that the, these aligned incentives need to happen more frequently which is people who do care about getting this drug to you know a good, good healthy place on the market rather than just going through the you know everyone does this and then this and then this other thing and then suddenly you're golden um i think that's a reason for failure too yeah yeah of course and, and just from just from the viewpoint of scientific discovery and, and curiosity it would benefit 
um, companies themselves in, in, at, at the end of the day, the patients too. Completely. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. Well, and, and often those scientists are a lot more uh, intuitive in terms of, you know, what kind of drug they think they're developing. And then they get into the kind of big machinery of the, of the large pharma company and the six monthly reviews and so forth. And uh, um, so, yeah, no, I think that the, I mean, you know, the scientific process should lead to more drugs coming to market than it does. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we instead have got a, got a kind of, um, you know, manufacturing perspective being brought back into that curiosity. Yeah, just what you were saying about um, the biotechs earlier, um, f- from what I, from who I've spoken to and the companies I've, I've covered, it certainly seems to be that you know they, they have um, a bit of an insight into into how to apply technology to drive the speed of the drug discovery pro- um, process or to apply it to different tumor profiles in patients for oncology, for instance. Um, and I, I know you've. Um, got a bit of experience through prototype, I, I think, using some sort of um, AI technology within the process. Could you just um, explain a little bit about that, please? Yeah, so I think the worst use of AI is to do drug discovery. I, I think it's the wrong question for a really powerful technology. Hmm. If you look at what AI and machine learning is good at, it's good at supporting decisions, right? Which is exactly where we want to where we want to apply it. So you can use it for drug design, but that sort of ignores just how much we don't know about biology. You know, it's almost this hubristic approach that says, "Look, we just point this this computer at that problem, and you know, we suddenly got a new protein fold, and we've got a solution that no one's seen before." Actually, you look at the dynamics of decision making in early phase. And this idea, we talk about this as intelligent decision economics, which is, is it worth spending A to find out B? Is it worth spending X to find out Y? Knowing that the value of getting your drug to B or to Y is is, is something you can calculate. You know, you, you know that if you've got a drug that will, you know, hit triple negative breast cancer, it's worth X. And, you know, if you've got a drug that targets, you know, something else, it's worth, uh, you know, something different. And you know what the inputs and you know what the outputs would be if, of, of that but also, you know, well, what kind of evidence would be useful? And is it good enough to have, you know, evidence in mice that that don't resemble any other living species? Or is it, you know, what other evidence would be useful? So this decision economics framework, I think, is a, is a perfect uh, application for, for machine. But also, if you, you know, do some of what we do, which is to look for ways of, you know, establishing causal relationships between molecules and, and diseases, you know, some are negatively correlated, some are positively correlated. Those generate clues, but they're not enough. You need to then be able to put a clinical trial design next to that. And again, you know, humans are really the worst people to do that planning. You know, computers are sometimes the best way to simulate the way the clinical trials work and the way that the outcomes can can, can, can spread, what probabilities of success look like. So, you know, we're almost moving towards this, this, this sort of phase when you know, untouched by human hand is, is almost the best sort of application of, um, of, of decision making. It's a bit like, you know, I think in 20 years time, we'll look at this the way that, you know, we used to, you know, when I went to the same university as you, we used to have to go to a library and look through books. And then now you'd go to Google to do the same thing. And I think uh, this idea of, you know, looking at possibility, looking at probability in phase one, I think will become a... Um, you know, more, uh, you know, computer-based activity than it is today. And I think it will be for the benefit of range and for the benefit of, you know, useful feedbacks on, on decisions. Yeah, I, I suppose the, um, the difficulty of 
applying a new technology to farm and, and changing its practices is, is just for longevity of, of the processes you know that, that have been within the industry for so long people are, are, are used to doing it in a certain manner and, and like anything it takes a lot of time and, and money and investment to um to change those ways yeah so you know i think we've had this perfect two years of seeing what happens when you think differently within our industry you know the development of the vaccines in record time has only been down to the world coming towards the candidates you know because you look at this time last year there were 150 vaccine candidates we've got some like six or seven through you know a couple that haven't worked but actually you know what was the reason that they succeeded in most cases it was faster decision making it was you know the ability to recruit patients faster it was working with the regulators none of those are things that we couldn't do next year in cardiology or oncology we just haven't uh, so i think the ability to change the mindset within pharma is it's an important one and we tend to talk about this as asymmetry right which is you know your company's ability to learn what the molecule does it can be the same as everyone else's which is fine but if you want to win then you need some asymmetry in how you learn how you approach those questions and we have just seen this wonderful period of of you know how companies have thought about their processes changing some of the silos changing how leadership interact with the, with the program changing how they talk to regulators we could do a lot more of that going forwards and, and, and shorten development times you know and, and biotech i think does have the advantage of sometimes you know understanding their market very well you know, they're often very close to scientists to start those companies often, you know, you know, they have a deep understanding of hepatitis or, you know, virology or oncology. And that is, that's beneficial because you don't need to wait three months to be told in a PowerPoint deck what the market looks like. You already know. <laughs> and those kind of things are already shortened timelines. And we've seen uh, almost on the other side of it, the, you know, as a company that six months ago had an approval and the first commercial dosing of the patient within 47 hours. You know, that kind of thing we used to talk about taking six months and having a, a kind of launch meeting and, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. And you go, well, you know, realistically, there's all sorts of ways of shaving time from, you know, from concept to, uh, to, to, to launch now. Are you hopeful that those changes that have been made within the two, two years, you know, through the pandemic um, will continue going forward? Um, not everywhere. I think this uh, regression to the way things used to be, uh, you know, and a lot of people become senior in companies because they're good at managing process, not because they're, you know, somehow. So I think when they had to shift, they did, but the, 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 I guess there'll be a tendency to go back to to normal anyway. I think some companies are already beginning to restructure how they, you know, how they make decisions and so forth. So, you know, and certainly uh, I know our client base is, is, is maybe atypical, but there's a, you know, I think there's a desire to see where improvements can be made and to just bake some of those things in. So I, I think, you know, nothing was different in terms of candidate selection with the vaccines or with the therapeutics. The only thing that changed was that the world kind of came to us, you know, and um, that is possible if we think about it differently in, in, in different therapeutic areas. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, t- I totally agree. I mean, all you have to do is look at the statistics for something like cancer, which you know c- kills millions, or antibiotic resistance, which is you know yeah. um, becoming a major threat. Um, but I, I suppose just moving back to to, um, to your companies, and you, you've given us a very sort of a 
concrete overview of your of, of your thinking and um, your approach to the industry. But why would why would a pharmaceutical company or a biopharma choose to come to Idea Pharma or Protodyme compared to say um, a consultancy or a contract research organization? Um, so I think the first thing I mean, you know, Protodyme. A lot of people are talking about us about us as a kind of pre-RO, so a kind of CRO, but pre-CRO, if you like, uh, which I kind of like pre-RO, um, <laughs> is that they're not set up to generate insights. They're mostly set up to generate answers to questions that you've already given them, hmm. you know, and they operate at scale. They do very well. You know, if you want 5,000 patients in your study, you know, you definitely wouldn't come to us if you already knew what study you want to run. That's not what we're for. The phase at which you're still pre-decision, the phase at which you're still looking to make a choice about which path to go to, you need someone who's focused on that, that, that approach, that intelligent decision economics. And um, that's really what we're set up to do. So everything that we do is, is to say, oh, let's look at range, let's look at opportunity. We talk about this as opportunity-seeking behavior instead of risk mitigation, which is really what the rest of the industry is for. But that kind of, you know, I tend to talk about this as kind of Godzilla versus Kong, the kind of, you know, the way that the, the CROs are, are, are now, there's this pursuit of scale, growth. Um, but what happens before that, it's very hard if you've got a large organization to care about running a, you know, different evidential process in maybe five patients or in, or in dogs instead of mice um, or in looking at, uh, you know, digital biomarkers or other ways of generating signals. Early. that's exactly where we're focused and i think that's a very healthy approach and say so our mindset's not the same as everyone else's which is you know the world of consultancy tends to assume there's an answer there's a right answer we don't we assume that you know if you if i come to you and you're a you know 30 person biotech or if i come to you and you're a 30 to 30 000 patient 30 000 person company the right answer for you might be very different. You know, you'll pick different paths to market just because of who you are. So it tells you there's no right answer. It just tells you that you've got to come up with a range of different ways of doing it. Um, so that's what we do. Um, if someone's comfortable to, you know, to manage that uncertainty, then we're the right people. If if they've already got a, a very strong view about where they want to go, then we're probably not the right people. Hmm. It, it it amazes me that within pharma, it's you think about it being this, you know, intensely scientific-led uh, business, which is full of really intelligent people, and um, you know these huge, these huge teams looking at biology and you know DNA and molecules and all, and, all, and all that. But it amazes me that it can get bogged down in all this type of bureaucracy, um, and and that studies can just be sort of left to linger a little bit. And, and, and you know, some of the examples you've given earlier uh, um, about not having um you know the correct proof of concepts it's it's just it's baffling almost uh no i think you're right i mean look this is the industry that's probably staffed with the most intelligent people on the planet you know if, if you were to compare industries and i think they all want to do good work it's not a you know i still hate every time we see the industry on tv or on on on, on a movie the, the way it's portrayed yeah, big fun yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah i mean most of us are here to do great work and um but I think the kind of management consultancy view of how you organize a pharmaceutical company is, uh, has argued against that. I think the silos don't help. But I think you can take those people and give them something that they all enjoy doing, which is to think about how to think about early phase. 
Because I think what happens is so many assumptions get baked in. You know, if we launch this drug in this niche population, that means that we can't do X or Y. Well, actually, at that point, you need someone to say, well, yes, but, um, you know, maybe that's could be managed if we launched it and then, you know, and that kind of thing. So I think there's things that kill innovation early. I think, you know, I can't talk about the TPP and the target product profile being one of the enemies of innovation because as soon as it's baked, everyone starts only being able to see one thing going forwards and the assumptions that are baked into it are usually wrong. You know, then we do a forecast and that's always wrong. And those things become, you know, the gospel and everyone behaves that way. As soon as you unpack those and look at the variables and see what's possible, A, people get to bring their creative souls to the, to the task rather than just their, uh, you know, they need to be right. And um, and it becomes collaborative instead of you know, this kind of baton pass because, you know, as you know, there's this sort of battle pass between the kind of you know, the preclinical guys, the early phase guys, and then at some point the late stage uh, commercial and, and clinical teams are brought in. But usually they're left with something that they wouldn't have asked for if they could have been involved earlier. And that's really our insight is let's get those voices into the process early so that we can harness the intelligence and the intellectual curiosity of of the people involved. Uh, and it's, it's a more fun, but be you know a lot more productive as well. Perfect. Yeah, and it must be so much so much more satisfying for you know the scientists and, and researchers um, in, involved in the process. Yeah. Well, if you think about when that could be one receptor uh, team, we went back to them and said, let's let's ideate how you could have taken this molecule through to uh, different places, and the looks on their faces when they realised that there are regulatory places that they could have gone, and what the proofs of concept could have looked like. It was it was you know it was a, it was a fun short workshop but you know they just didn't realize that the company didn't have to take over from the point they get that they gave it to them and that you could keep drugs alive that would have died within a kind of uh, within the wrong field yeah perfect um just before we wrap up mike uh could you just give us a little bit of an idea of um what idea pharma and protodyme are going to be up to within uh, the rest of the year and into next year as well um so Protodyme's set on two things. One thing is uh, is this. This is kind of very early phase characterization. There's a deepening of exploratory evidence. We've got some remarkable things launching. We've got a, a, a kind of prospective patient cohort, uh, you know, more than 70,000 patients going into a cohort to study clean and generate clean data for to teach machines something about the disease that we're studying. Um, which is looking at novel endpoints. It's got you know biobank samples. It's got phenotypes, genotypes, interventions. Because um, the problem with machine learning, as you know, is that if you feed it horrible data, which is mostly what we've had historically, they don't learn very much. If you if you feed them prospectively and create what we're going to create as a digital twin there, uh, so that's a pre-competitive uh, collaboration between some pharma companies and our. Uh, and our cohort of uh, a CRO plus a charity plus us uh, to focus on how you learn uh, to break apart a disease, to put it back together again in, with uh, novel uh, insights. That's the kind of thing that we're doing at Protodyne, which, you know, just to extend this learning idea further um, at, uh, at IDEA. Our, our goal fundamentally is to, is to shift the way that people make decisions in phase one, you know, f- uh, so we're on a kind of... Uh, you know, evangelistic phase uh, to, to to help people see the sort of benefits of moving the decision goal post later and making you know more 
lateral versus linear uh, decisions. Um, so um, yeah, it's, uh, it's it's an exciting time. We've got some really you know prototypes going faster than we thought uh, as, as as people are embracing this idea. So uh, so yeah, more of the same. But um, you know, I think the industry needs something better upstream than it's had, and uh, so we're. Uh, you know, looking to feed the CROs with more interesting programs and, and feed pipelines with more interesting phase twos and phase threes. Awesome. Well, I, uh, I certainly look forward to hearing more about it and um, maybe we'll catch up again uh, in the future to talk about some of the de- developments Protodyme have had. We'd love that. Brilliant. Uh, cheers, Mike. That's, that's, uh, that's all I've got for you. Reese, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. No worries.